last night, two of my kids got to go to prom. Can you guys think back to your high school prom many, many, many years ago? Uh, it was great. I love seeing my kids all dressed up. Uh, it was fantastic. They looked so good. Uh, they got to go and do, you know, the pictures where the moms get around and they take 100 pictures. Uh, it was great. They got to go do dinner and they got to go to the dance thing. And uh, it was great. I, I, I love the kids they went with. I love the group they went with. And, and, and it was just, it was a fun night as a parent to see your kids do that. And it made me think to my wife and I, we were actually high school sweethearts. I know some of you look at me and you're like, you guys just got out of high school. Okay, we were preschool sweethearts. It was high school sweethearts for real, it was. And uh, we went to our junior and senior proms together. And so I look back and I'm like, those were some really fun memories that we had together. We dated in high school. We had a lot of fun. I was a little bit crazier back then, and uh, I would do anything I could to make her laugh. And so we have some fun memories. I think about uh, our senior prom. Uh, my wife, uh, she had this dress that was straight out of Cinderella. It was remarkable. It was like, I don't know, the mouse, the mouse gave her the dress. I don't know. However it worked, it was amazing. And uh, we have a lot of fun memories. And I think about all of those fun memories we have from back then. And those are great memories, but those aren't really what made our relationship. In fact, what made our relationship, what made me realize that she was special, that she was the one, is ever since I was young, I, I go through these seasons where, I, where I, I get these little funks. Now, typically, I am an energetic guy. I am optimistic. I am joyful. That's kind of just my personality. But I go through these funks where I get really down in the dumps. I start struggling with a lot of self-doubt. I start feeling really bad about myself, and I, I seclude myself from people. And I remember I was in, it was in high school, and I had one of these funks, and I'm like, great. Like, here I am supposed to be this joyful, fun guy. I think she likes that joyful, fun guy. And I'm in the dumps, and I'm like, she's not going to like me anymore. She could have any guy in the world that she wanted. Uh, and I remember this because I was in one of these things, and she showed up when I was down, when I was trying to, and she brought me a book called The Blue Day Book. And I still have this book. It's a dumb little book. But it was basically like her saying, I'm with you. You're down in the dumps. You're struggling. I'm with you. And that was the day I realized if she could like the worst version of myself, she was a keeper. Like that was pretty. And I think about like, you think about relationships. You think about faith. Isn't that kind of, true, where, where we can go through seasons where things are really good, and that's good, but it's when things get hard that we really see, like, where that relationship is. In fact, there's this quote uh, that I want to share with you this morning, and it says that the depth of our love or our faith is revealed not in times of prosperity, but in times of trials and hardships. Isn't that true? That the depth of our love for, for people is revealed not when things are really good, but when things get difficult, I mean, like, none of us want to have just fair-weather friends, right? Friends that show up when things are good, when things are good, but when things get hard, they're gone. You're like, yeah, that's not a close friend. That's not the kind of friend I want to have. You want to have friends that show up when things get difficult. And isn't that true of our faith as well? It's easy for us to be passionate about God, to follow God when things are going really good when life is blessed and, and, and things are, are happy. But when things get hard, that shows our true faith. In fact, in the book of 1 Peter, 
Uh, Peter relates our faith to uh, gold being refined. Because we go through trials. I mean, they're a part of life. We can't avoid them. We're going to go through difficulty. We're going to have problems. We might face persecution. All these different things. And Peter says those things are there to to show the depth of your faith. Because when when you go find raw gold, you get this clump of, of, of raw gold, and it's this eroded uh, lump of rock that's covered in dirt and alloy. It's not a pretty sight. It's not the gold that we think of when we think of, of gold. But what happens is that goldsmith, he takes that, 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 that rock, and he puts it in the fire, and he burns it at 1,000 degrees Celsius. And what happens is that the impurities begin to to melt and they come to the top. All those things that are junk, all those things that aren't pure gold, they rise to the top and the goldsmith takes that off and scrapes it off. And then they put it back in the fire and they do it again and again until that, that, that gold is purified to where it's pure gold, solid, beautiful. And that's what happens in our faith. Is when we go through those hardships, it shows those areas that we're not really walking with God. It shows those areas where we're not putting our faith and trust to him. It shows those areas where maybe our faith isn't as deep as we would like it to be. It shows where we're relying on ourselves instead of relying on God. Here this year, we're going to be studying the book of Acts for the majority of this year. And we saw that the book of Acts is really like the, the early church, how they become a movement. They became a movement that impacted everything around them. And as we're looking at our culture and our church, and we're like, how do we become like the early church where we impact everything around us? We want to make a difference in our families, in our city, in our country, in our state. Like, how do we become a movement like that? So we're looking at the early church, the book of Acts, to say, God, could you help us become a movement like them? Where we've been, we saw in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are on, on the way to the temple, and they see that guy that is, is lame. He's, he's disabled. He's in front of the temple gates uh, begging for alms. And Peter and John, we have that, that story where they say, hey, silver and gold have I none, but what I have we give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And the man is healed miraculously. And he goes in the temple, and he's walking and leaping and praising God, kind of the way that we should be worshiping next Sunday. On Easter, walking and leaping and praising God. He goes to the temple and this crowd gathers around. They're like, what happened to this guy? He was disabled and now he's, he's walking and leaping. They gather around Peter and John and Peter delivers a sermon. I told you guys last week, it was like a three-hour sermon. So uh, you guys should be happy today that we're going to be like 38 minutes maybe, 40, minute, 40 minutes, uh, somewhere around there. And so they preach this message. And then the religious leaders, they get upset. They get upset because there's this crowd gathering around Peter and John. They get upset because Jesus, or Peter is preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. And so what do they do? They throw Peter and John into prison. They throw them into jail. They bring them to, to court. And they say, hey, we, we tell you, you cannot, you cannot preach about this Jesus anymore. And we have that line that we shared last week. That they said, whether it's right for us to obey God or man, you decide. But we cannot speak of what we have seen and what, but what we have seen and what we have heard. Now, here's where we're at. We saw this happen. We saw this is the first persecution of the early church. We're going to see persecution happen in just about every other chapter throughout the book of Acts. The question is, when, we, when they're facing persecution, they're facing this hardship, these, these challenges, we're going to see in our text today that they respond in a way that 
they get to have the power of God work in them and through them. And isn't that what we want? Don't we want the power of God in our lives, in our families, in, in our church? In our, like, don't we want to see the power of God in us and through us? And again, this is where I want us to grasp, like, life is full of trials. We're going to face difficulty and problems and suffering. It's a reality of this life. So for me, what I want to do today is look at this text to say, what can we learn from this early church to how they responded to that persecution, how they responded to problems that would enable us to know how we could experience the power of God even in the midst of the problems that we face? Because we might face persecution. Chances are we'll face problems. So how could, what can we learn from them that we could have the power of God in us and through us? Four things we're going to point out. Text starts out in verse 23, and it says, When the religious leaders had released Peter and John, they went to their friends to report what the authorities had said to them. Listen, the first thing that they're going to see, if we're going to experience the power of God in our lives, the first thing they did is they went to church, right? That's what it says. They went to their friends. They went to church. Now, I don't know if they went to the small group or the large Sunday gathering. I don't think that really matters. I think the point is they gathered with the people of God. They went to the people who were going to love them, who were going to pray for them, who were going to remind them of truth, who were going to hold them accountable to the things of God. You see, they went to God's people. See, when we're going through trials, what is our natural response? When you're facing a hardship, what's your natural response? Is it not to pull back? Is it not to seclude yourself? We go through circumstances, and we think, I can't tell anybody else what I'm going through. We go through these circumstances, and we're like, no one's going to understand what I'm going through. This is unique. No one else understands it. I don't want to burden other people with my problems. Or I don't want to share that I have problems because they might judge me. And so what do we do? When we're facing problems, we pull back. We isolate ourselves. We suffer alone. But here's the thing. When we suffer alone, that is when our enemy is the strongest. This is why predators, whether that be wolves or lions or whatever it happens to be, they don't attack the pack. They attack the lone animal. They attack the lone wolf. No, the lo- not the wolf, the lone sheep. They attack the one on its own. You see what I'm going there? That's what they do. And so as the early churches, they're facing persecution. And again, we might not face persecution. But we'll have trials and problems and suffering and hardship. Those moments will be the greatest strain on our faith, the greatest strain on our relationships, the greatest strain on our mental health, the greatest strain on our life. Here's the thing. Listen, do not go and suffer alone. Don't pull back. In fact, one of the things we say here at Restoration Church is we are a people who belong together. And this idea that we belong together comes right out of this kind of a text. That when you're going through stuff, listen, you don't have to go through it alone. We are in it together. That as a people of God, when you start suffering and going through difficulty, you don't have to go it alone. There's people in this room that will walk with you through it. That'll show up when you need it. That'll show up and maybe not even say a word, just be present with you. Because we're people who belong together. This is what the church looks like. This is where the power of the church comes together. Is that when you're suffering, man, if we're going to have the power of God, 
We've got to be willing to come to the people of God and say, hey, would you walk through this with me? Let's do this together. So Peter and John, the first thing they do, they're released from jail. They go to church. And what are they going to do? They gather with the church, and I bet they're going to complain about how evil the world is, right? I bet they're going to start a petition about how wrong the government was. They're going to start a social media campaign to expose how evil uh, the Sadducees were. Or if they're a typical church, they're going to start a committee to investigate the legalities of the threats that were made against Peter and John. They're going to probably hire some armed guards to follow Peter and John wherever they go. Maybe get those black SUVs with the bulletproof glass to drive them around to protect them. That's what, no, that's not what they do. It says, verse 24, when the church heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. What did they do? They prayed. Second thing, if we're going to experience the power of God in our lives, in our church, we've got to be a people who are committed to pray. Again, I come back to when we're facing a hardship, what is our natural response? Is our first response to pray? No, I know we're at church and, and all of us would be like, well, of course I would pray when I face a hardship. Of course that's what I, like we're at church. Like, of course that's the Sunday school answer. But if you get fired from a job, if your child is hurt by someone else, if you're in an accident, what is our natural first response? Is it not to freak out? Is it not to get angry? Is it not to defend ourselves and defend our child? That's our natural response. Our natural response typically isn't first to, to pray. Because typically, most of us, we trust ourselves first and foremost before we trust God. In fact, there was a couple of years ago, uh, I was gathered with, with a bunch of pastors, and we're talking about, as pastors, how can we have a better prayer life? How can we become more disciplined so that we spend more time in prayer? And so we had all these great ideas. We talked about getting a prayer journal and keeping a prayer journal, and that, that was all. Awesome. We talked about getting, uh, taking your phone and making some alarms go off throughout the day to remind you to pray, and we're like, man, those are really good ideas. And they, they, they did. They helped us to, to pray more. I remember one of the pastors here we are, we're all pastors, we're talking about this stuff. And one of the guys says, you know, I think we're thinking about this all wrong. He said, prayerlessness is not a self-discipline problem. Prayerlessness is a faith problem. Prayerlessness is a sign that we are walking in our own strength, in our own wisdom, and our own understanding, and not walking in dependence on God, not walking in the Spirit. That hurts a little bit, doesn't it? See, the early church, prayer was the natural reflex to whatever situation they were facing. Things were good in their life. Hey, we're going to stop. We're going to praise God. We're going to thank him for what he's doing. They're facing suffering and hardship. They're facing persecution. They're going to stop and pray, God, would you be present with us? They're confused. They're going to stop and say, pray, God, would you give us some understanding? It was our natural uh, reaction, that natural reflex to whatever situation they were doing is they were praying. You know, it reminds me, a couple years ago, my wife and I were talking to a, a friend about parenting. And I remember he said this to us. I remember he said, the secret to parenting is John 15, verse 5. Like, well, what does that verse say? It says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
And I've come to realize like how much I need to be reminded of that verse every single day. Because when I start looking at my parenting, at my work, at my marriage, how I treat other people, man, if I'm going to do those things right, it's not because I'm so great. It's because I need God working in me and through me. I need to be reminded, apart from him, I can do nothing. Because when I'm dependent on him, guess what? Prayer's natural. When I'm depending on him, prayer becomes the natural uh, reflex to whatever situation I'm doing. Because I'm dependent on him, not on myself. This early church recognized, hey, if anything's going to happen, we need to depend on the Lord. So they're praying. And what are they praying for? Verse 24, it says, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You see what they're praying about? They're praying that they would trust in the sovereignty of God. That's what they say, sovereign Lord. This term sovereign Lord means that uh, he, God is an authority figure. He's a master who exercises complete jurisdiction. He's one who wields unrestricted power. That's what it means to say, you are the sovereign Lord. And they're praying and say, you're the, the Lord of all creation. You're the creator of all things. And by saying, God, you're the creator of all things, what they're saying is, God, since you created all things, there's nothing that you created that's stronger than you. And if you're stronger than all of that, then that means, God, you are in control. You are more powerful than everything on this earth. Nothing can stop your plans. And I'll tell you what, the sovereignty of God is one of the most important uh, things for us to grasp about God. That he has power and wisdom and authority to do whatever he chooses. We've got to grasp that God is in control. Because by believing that, by believing that God is in control, that God has a plan and a purpose, that means that he is actively involved in each step of our life. We don't have a God who created the whole universe, who created all this thing, and is like, all right, peace out. I'm going to go do my own stuff now. No, we have a God who is actively involved in the circumstances that we are facing. He is present. He is there. Things are happening according to his plan. Now, I know some of us are sitting in our seat today, and we're like, oh, that sounds really good. God's in control. I get it, Pastor, but what about all the bad stuff? What about all the bad stuff? Why would God permit bad things to happen? Why would God allow suffering and death and divorce and job loss and bankruptcy and addictions? Why would God allow bad things to happen? And I think Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, I think he knew we'd ask that question. I think the early church knew we'd ask that question. So in their text, as they're praying and reminding themselves and saying, you are the sovereign Lord who created everything. Verses 24 and 25, they quote Psalm chapter 2. And it says, why do the Gentiles rage? Why do the people plot in vain? The kings of earth, they set themselves. The rulers are gathered against the Lord, against his anointed. They're pointing back to Scripture and reminding themselves in Psalm chapter 2 is a psalm about how the world, how the nations of the world, how the people would rage against the Messiah. They'd rage against Jesus. But God ultimately overcame the rebellion. 
He had a plan and a purpose to allow them to rebel against Jesus. This is what it says in the next two verses, verses 27. He said, uh, uh, the early church prayed and said, truly, they gathered against Jesus. And he listen to this. God, who you anointed, Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. Yeah, them raging against the Messiah, them putting Jesus on the cross, it wasn't by accident. God actually had a plan and a purpose in place. I mean, absolutely, the death of Jesus was, was horrendous. Even people conspired to do bad things to Jesus to send him to the cross. But as horrendous that was, it was still predestined and planned by God. God's plan was to send Jesus to the earth, his sinless son, to take the divine punishment for sin upon himself on the cross. And on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus so we could be forgiven of our sin. No, it wasn't just random that the nations raged against Jesus. No, there was a plan behind it. God had a purpose in that. See, when we understand how that works, that God is sovereign, that God is in control, even through difficult things, that means that God has a plan and a purpose. Romans 8.28, For all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. All things. Accidents? Yes. Bankruptcy? Yes. Suffering? Yes. God is at work in your life, just as he was at work in the life uh, and the death of Jesus. And as we're sometimes in the middle of it, we don't understand it. We go through and we're like, God, why am I suffering like this? I don't understand. This is where sovereignty is best read backwards. We don't typically understand what God is doing in the middle of it. It takes us a little bit of time. This is where you can look back in your life and you're like, man, remember when I went through that thing 10 years ago and how hard that was and how difficult that was? I can look back at all those years down the road and be like, wow, look what God was doing. Look at where I am now. Look what God taught me. Look what God did in me and through me. Oh, it hurt in the middle of it. And I didn't understand it in the middle. But look what God did because of that. That is the sovereignty of God. I love this. They pray and they, they, they focus on the sovereignty of God. And then verse 29, it says, Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant us your servants. And what are, what are they going to ask for? They're, this is their request now. Are they going to ask for travel mercies? Are they going to ask for safety? Are they going to pray and say, God, we need new elected officials God, we need wisdom to know whether you want us to keep preaching in the name of Jesus. No, they don't ask for those things. It says, verse 29, God, grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand and heal, the signs and wonders are performed through your name, through your holy servant, Jesus. See, the fourth thing about this early church, as they respond to persecution, they were more concerned about faithfulness than deliverance. More concerned about being faithful to the Lord in whatever circumstance they're in rather than just making the problems go away. I'm like, they're praying for boldness and I'm like, you know what got you in trouble in the first place? Your boldness. 
The boldness got you in trouble, and you're praying for more of that? But I love it because before praying for a positive outcome around them, they're praying for a faithful spirit within them. Now hear me, it's not wrong for us to pray for deliverance. It's not wrong to pray for healing or a miracle or God's power. But if we believe that God is sovereign, if we believe that God is working all things out for your good and for his glory, that means in the middle of that, we should be praying and say, God, help me understand what you're trying to do. Help me be faithful in whatever circumstance you have me in. Because God, you're still at work. You're still present. You're still moving. And I don't know why I'm here, God. And I'm going to pray that you make things easier, God. But more importantly, God, I want to be faithful with whatever you have in front of me today. And I love this because you have this prayer from the early church. And we have a God who hears our prayers. He's going to answer their prayer in verse 31. It says, when they prayed, the place that they were gathered was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the word of God with all boldness. This shaking has theological significance in the scriptures. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah enters into the throne room of God, scripture says that that room shook at the presence of God. In Matthew 27, it says the earth shook during the death of Jesus when that curtain was torn, was torn in two. You see, this shaking represents the presence of God. It represents his approval. This is a picture of the power of God descending upon this early church. The power of God descends on them, and it's no wonder that they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they continue to speak the word of God with all boldness. And I love this because here's, here's a summary of what this passage is, is telling us. As we want the power of God in our life, this passage is teaching us that the power of God is found in surrendering to God and to his sovereignty in the face of persecution and problems and trials and hardship and suffering. That if we want the power of God in our life, in our family, in our church, in our city, the power of God is found as we surrender to God and to his sovereignty in whatever circumstance we face. Now, I know in church, we throw out terms like just surrender to God, just surrender to his sovereignty. It's kind of a religious term. What does it actually mean to surrender to God? There was a pastor in New York City who uh, was trying to preach to people in New York and try to help them understand what it means to surrender to God. And so here's what he did. He said, follow me. And he takes these people down Fifth Avenue. I don't know what's on Fifth Avenue in New York. I've never been there takes them down Fifth Avenue, and they come to uh, the statue of Atlas. You've seen that statue? That's the picture of that really strong guy. And you see all his muscles bulging. And he's got the world on his shoulders. And it's a neat picture. You've got this guy who's so strong with the world on his shoulders, and he's barely able to stand up under the burden of the world. That's the picture of us as we try and control our circumstances and understand and make things happen, we're, we're straining under the crushing weight of the world around us. This pastor says that's one way to do it. And this pastor said the other way to do it is they walk across the street to St. 
Patrick's Cathedral, where there's a statue of Jesus as a little boy, eight, nine, or 10 years old. And in Jesus' hand is the world. Reminds us of that Sunday school song. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world. There's no effort for him. He's holding it and has control of it. See, when we surrender to God, it's where we take the weight of the world off of our shoulders and say, God, this is for you. I don't understand what's going on, but I'm trusting you with the world. I'm trusting you with my life. I'm trusting you with my finances. I'm trusting you with my marriage, with my job, with my whatever it happens to be. I'm not going to carry that weight on my shoulders because it's crushing. I can't do it, but I'm going to trust God that you are working things out for my good and for your glory. I'm going to trust that you're present, that you have a plan and a purpose. I'm going to trust that you're still good, that you're still present with me in the middle of it. To surrender means we actually believe that God is God and not us. We believe that God loves us, that God is working things out. And you know, there is so much freedom. There is so much freedom when we take the weight of the world off of our shoulders and put it in the palm of Jesus' hands. There is freedom when we trust him like that, that he is in control makes me think of Psalm 23, the famous psalm. Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd. He gives me what I need. He leads, lets me lie down beside green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me along the path of righteousness for his name's sakes. That's who God is. We like that picture of him, that he does all these good things for us. But you know, that famous psalm, it continues. And it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God, you are still with me. Your rod and your comfort, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know what the psalmist is saying? Even though I'm suffering, you're still God. You're still in control. Just like you were in control when you were doing those good things. I'm in this hardship, and God, you're still God. You're still in control. I know the question becomes, well, why, why would God allow him to go through the valley of shadow of death? Why would he allow him to suffer? Because the funny thing with green pastures, at some point, the, the sheep are going to eat all the green pasture. They're going to eat all the grass. And as the shepherd is saying, man, I need to take care of you, guess what? I'm going to have to find a new green pasture for you. And so what does the shepherd do? He leads the sheep through the dark spot the valley of the shadow of death, to take them to someplace better, to lead them beside a new green pasture, new still waters. And this is why he promises, even though they struggle, verse 5, I prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The psalmist says, yeah, suffering will not have the last laugh. God is still in control. Only goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That's what we're asking you to do this morning. Surrender to God. Surrender to his sovereignty. To believe in him. To believe that he is God. That he's in control. 
Now, even though you don't understand it, he has a plan and a purpose. And I'll close three simple things because as we surrender to God's sovereignty, there's three simple blessings we get from it. Number one, we get a greater trust in him. When we believe God is at work, even in hardship and suffering, man, we get this greater trust in him. You know, God's often described as being a father. And he's a good father. He's a good father. It reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. And the prodigal son, you've got the father who loves his son wholeheartedly. He loves his son. Yet he allows his son to take the inheritance. And what does the son do? He blows the inheritance and riotous living. It's like the father allows him to suffer. Not because the father doesn't like him. Not because the father is trying to punish him. Not for any of those reasons. No, the father allows his son to do that because he wants his son to realize the love that the father has for him. He wants him to know, listen, your dad loves you. Your, your dad has good plans for you. You can trust and depend on me. It's a, it's a trust thing. And when we believe that God has a plan and a purpose, our trust gets so much deeper. In fact, this is what Joni Erickson Tata said. She said, God allows what he hates in order to, order to accomplish what he loves. And I'd say that's so true. God allows hard things to happen. Why? So we quit depending on ourselves. So we come to the point that we have to trust in him, depend on him, rely on, on him. When we surrender the sovereignty of God, it leads us to a, a greater trust. Number two, it leads us to a greater hope. When we believe that God is in control, when we believe that God has a plan and a purpose, man, there's this incredible hope that comes from that. Hope that whatever we're in, this is not the end. Hope that God can bring good out of whatever we're facing. Hope that we can get through whatever it is. Hope that even in the middle of the suffering, we are not alone. That God walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And I think about the hope. I think about how believing that God is in control leads to hope. Just think about the promises of God. They have so much comfort and hope to us in the middle of our suffering. When we are weary... He says in 2 Corinthians, he says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Isn't that hopeful? That God's grace is sufficient for us in the middle of our suffering. When we deal with financial problems, his promise is this, I will supply every need of yours according to my riches in Christ Jesus. That's hope. When we're feeling alone, he says in Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know what that is? That's hope. When we are afraid, he says in Isaiah 41, do not fear for I am with you. Do not, do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you by my right hand. That is hope. And that is the hope when we believe that God is who he said he is. That as we surrender to him, we believe he's at work. Now there's this great, great hope that comes in response from that. Lastly, when we surrender to the sovereignty of God, 
it leads to greater worship. Because we go through those seasons when things get hard. Like, I don't get it. I don't understand it. Why am I struggling? God, where are you at? God, do you even care? God, are you still good? But you see, when we choose to believe the truth, no matter what circumstance we're in, we choose to believe that God is God, that God is good, that God is working things out. That means that no matter whatever situation we're in, we can learn to be content. No matter whatever situation, when we can still say, God, you are still God, I will still work. In fact, this is what the psalm, this is, this is all of our psalms. So many of our psalms are saying, God, why are we suffering? God, why are we going through this? But you are still God, and I will still worship you. In fact, that's the opportunity we have this morning. I don't know what it is you're facing. I don't know if you're in a season of difficulty, you're facing problems, persecution, whatever it happens to be. Whatever it is, we have the opportunity today to worship God for who He is. So we're going to invite you to do this morning. You bow your head with me for a moment.